Well, welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're entering our time of teaching. I like to, uh, I was talking to a friend, my buddy Dolly, and we were talking about what it is exactly that I do, and I told him I'm a professional considerer, so my job is to consider all week, and then, and then if somebody asks me, well, what do you do with all that professional considering? I say I give a public lecture each week, and... Thank you for your patience and grace. The lectures have been long. Uh, we've gone past the bell, but that's okay. Uh, today is the last week of the most difficult, I would say, of the public lectures. We have a little bit of a break. There'll be some challenging things ahead, but um, I do a public lecture, and uh, that's about to begin. So if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to 1 Corinthians? What's that? Yes. Yeah. All the, the children are up in kids' church, yeah? So they're studying about Jesus and talking about it and enjoying each other's company, so. Yes, yeah. We can talk afterwards if you want to jam on methodology. Yeah, come and talk to me. I'd love it. I'd love to consider that with you, so. All right, good question. All right, so if you've got a Bible, grab it. If you don't, there's some in the seat backs in front of you. And turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's our last week in chapter 7. So that's, if you've got a pew Bible, one of the Bibles in front of you, that's going to be on page 1015. So uh, yeah, we're going to consider here today, Paul's been talking a lot about uh, how we use our bodies in terms of avoiding sexual immorality and how we use our bodies in the marriage relationship, uh, the joy and the blessed state, as Ryan talked about beautifully last week. Uh, the state of singleness, the blessed state of singleness, and the accompanying gift that you need in order to do that well as a follower of Jesus, uh, known as the gift of celibacy, and that gift is multifaceted. Um, and, and Ryan did a great job talking about how with that gift you can find full satisfaction and enjoyment in this life um, apart from marriage, that marriage isn't necessarily the blessed state, but in fact, singleness is According to the Bible, according to Jesus himself, the eternal state. And is the eternal state blessed? Of course it is. So when God gives us a calling to that state in this life, he also gives us the, the requisite gifts needed to make that state fully blessed and enjoyable. And so, um, great sermon last week. If you didn't hear that, highly recommend you go and you listen to that or watch that online. Um, Theology about singleness is so much of what the Bible teaches builds upon that. So if you don't have a good theology of singleness and understand the blessedness of singleness, it will be hard to understand a lot of the other teachings of Scripture of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and likewise. In fact, um, I was thinking after Ryan's sermon last week how Jesus himself was, of course, in the state of singleness in his entire life on earth, and he is single now in the eternal state. Uh, as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Um, but while he was on earth, that means he needed the gift of celibacy. So he asked God, he was filled with the Spirit, and he had the gift, and so he lived a perfect life. He did not fall into the temptation. Je uh, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way, common to man. So he was fully tempted, but he never sinned. Now, with this gift in tow, what it, <laughs> I just want to make this point. Jesus, only once in his life, it seems, was away from his community, and the strength of his community, and that was at his testing in the wilderness. And Jesus went for 40 days. Jesus, the perfect 
God-man, he thought it was wise to only spend 40 days out of intimate Christian community. And then where did he go? He went back to his, disciple, uh, to his disciples and, and his friends, and he enjoyed and was a part of the Christian fellowship again. Why is that important? just want to say, you will not be able to live into the state of singleness without community. It's God's design. You have to have it. Jesus knew that, so 40 days was about what he thought was a good idea. <laughs> the question is, what is a good idea for you? So I just wanted to make that point. Such an important sermon last week. If you missed it, go back and read that because so much of, of the other teaching we've done hangs on a really good, thorough understanding of the blessed state of singleness and the gift and the gifts that God gives in that to live it out well. So that was last week, and now this week God is going to bring up another challenging but important teaching on uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. When is this appropriate? Is it ever appropriate? And Paul's going to give us some teachings on that. So what I'm going to do this week, uh, I'm going to do four things. First, I'm going to give you a brief Overview, because Paul first addresses, addresses Christian, uh, two Christians in a marriage, and he talks about divorce and remarriage. So I'm going to give a, a brief, very brief overview of what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. I can't go into the full thing, but I want to give you some framework, particularly if you're new to Christianity, or maybe you don't understand where some of the teachings of Christianity on this subject come from. So I'm going to give you a, a brief overview, and then actually we're going to put a link in the video to a three-hour teaching from a guy I like named Mike Winger, and he goes into all of it. I watched the whole thing, three hours, so it's pretty good. It's, it's worth, if you really have a lot of questions about this. Um, so that's the first thing, a brief teaching on, on marriage, remarriage, and divorce. And then we're going to look at what seems to be an additional principle that, that Paul will add to um, the allowance for divorce in our world, Okay? And and Paul's going to talk about that in verses 12 to 16. So the second thing I'm going to do. The third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you four reasons why God would direct us to stay in unhappy marriages. So you may have seen in the email, title this week, Happily Ever After. And the question I want to ask, the biggest question I want to ask today is, How or why would a loving God ever want us to stay in an imperfect marriage or an unhappy marriage? I thought the whole thing was about being happily married happily ever after. What's the deal with that? So I'm going to give you four reasons why I think God would call us to stay in a marriage that isn't that. And then finally, I'm going to give you some how-tos of how you might thrive even in that unhappy state. Okay, so... That's what we're going to do, but we're going to need some help because there's a lot of landmines, again, when it comes to the church and marriage and divorce, and it's been a lot said and a lot of tears shed, and, and before I get into that, I just want to say, um, what have we been reading about Christ and what he's done and his sacrifice? It says, some of you were like this, like this, this is in uh, chapter 6, and some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So perhaps you come into this room and you have been divorced, um, and maybe as we talk about it you realize your divorce is not one of the reasons the Bible gives. There's no condemnation in Christ. 
you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sending of the Spirit. And so what I don't want us to leave today is, is just to be steeped in shame or guilt. I want us to be freed from that and then understand this beautiful teaching about what marriage is, what it accomplishes in the world, and also what it's not. So, let's pray. Father God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts soft to your message, the gospel message. God, we were all lost until we were found. We were all sinners until we were justified by your sacrifice. God, we are all growing and being transformed. We are not yet there. We all need your grace continually. So we ask for it now through your, your word and the teaching of God. All things that are from you, God, would they stir in us that our affections for Christ and who he is and what he's done might grow. Things that aren't from you, God, or might be my own ideas that are wrong. Would you just help those dissolve away, go in one ear and out the other? This is our hope and our prayer. Meet us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first thing I said we're going to do is look at the teaching of Scripture. So Paul starts this section. So I'm going to read the whole section, and then I'm going to break it down into chunks based on the four things I said I'm going to do. So let's just read the whole section. This is uh, chapter 7, verses 10 and following. It says this, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Now, when he says that, what he's saying is, I'm actually quoting something Jesus taught, and we have that recorded for us, and I'm going to go to it in a second in Matthew 19. So that's what he's saying here. And then when he says, not the Lord, but I, he's not saying, like, God didn't say this. He's saying, like, Jesus himself didn't specifically teach on this circumstance, and he obviously couldn't have because the church hadn't been founded, Pentecost hadn't happened, so you'll understand why. So I just want to point that out. So here we go. That's what he's doing. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she is to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if a woman has an unbelieving husband, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let each one live in the life, uh, his life in the situation that the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's command is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can, become free. By all means, take the opportunity. For he is called by the Lord. He who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a freedman is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain 
with God in the situation in which he was called. Okay. For those of you who were in cohorts, you've spent a little bit of time looking at this, reading this passage, asking the questions, what is it actually trying to say? Where are the Christ connections? You may have better thoughts than me. Here are my thoughts. Here are my thoughts. In the very first section, he's talking to what seems to be married, a married couple who are both believers. They're both believers. He says, he gives this command. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that feels very limiting. <laughs> There's no exceptions here. What do we got to do? What does he say? He says, he says, not I but the Lord, right? So actually what he's doing here is he's saying, you guys have already heard what Jesus taught on this. Let me just remind you of what Jesus taught to the married couples. Now because some of us might not know what Jesus taught, let's go look at what Jesus taught. So Matthew 19 is one place. There's other places where Jesus teaches things. And what you're going to see here is there are, Jesus does give an exception to the rule that you should not divorce in marriage. So what is the rule? So Matthew 19, I'm just going to read the whole section, then I'll explain it. Starting in, in verse 1, Matthew 19. If you've got the Pew Bible, this is page 873. It says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed there. He healed them there. Some Pharisees, that's like the hyper-religious sect uh, of the Jewish people, they had a lot of power. They had a lot of ideas. They were professional considerers. So uh, they come to him and they ask him. They approach him, it says, to test him. So their motives are a bit mixed. They're trying to get Jesus in some trouble because they don't like that he's got large crowds and nobody cares what they have to say. I feel that. I feel that all the time. Okay. So they, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now, Again, I wish I could do a whole teaching on this, but basically what's happening is there's two schools of thought within Judaism at the time. One was like a super liberal thought. There was a whole group of people that were like, yeah, it's like no-fault divorce. Nobody should stay in an unhappy marriage. A husband, if he finds a more beautiful wife or a wife that cooks better, he can go. That's like a real thing. They have writings that show that. If you find a wife that can cook better, feel free to divorce your wife. So that's what they're actually asking on any grounds. They're saying, is that, is the more liberal sect, right? Or is the more conservative sect, which would have had some serious restrictions and only in extreme cases? That's what they're asking. Who's right? Which of the professional considerers is right? They want to know. They want to be justified. And they want to trap Jesus. They want the other group to get mad, whichever one he picks. This is what Jesus says. Haven't you read? <laughs> he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Maybe you've heard that at weddings. Quoting Jesus. Let no one separate. Why? Because this is God's design. This is something God has done. Then they asked him, Why then 
did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Basically, he's saying in the Old Testament, Moses gives permission for divorce to happen. Why would Moses give permission if God said it's never to happen? Jesus told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it, it was not like that from the beginning. Jesus going all the way back to the design, the intent, the hope of God. This is really informative for how we interpret a lot of other things. But, Jesus says, even though that's not how it was from the beginning, that wasn't God's design or intent or hope, he says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better to not marry. <laughs> What's he saying? He's like, this seems impossible. Jesus responded, not everyone can accept this saying, particularly the one he's about to say, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. What is, G I mean, what is he saying? First of all, he's agreeing with them. Marriage is hard. Could leave you in a very unhappy state. And so is it better to not get married? He's saying, perhaps, if God has called you to that, Think back now to what Paul just said about singleness. He's saying there are eunuchs, and eunuch doesn't just mean here those who are castrated. That's just one of the categories Jesus gives. There was a group of people that would often, in the ancient times, would uh, be in charge of, of important people's uh, harems and things like that and other important matters because they weren't uh, encumbered by marriage or even uh, the urge to be married. Uh, he says, but there's three kinds of eunuchs. Those who are eunuchs by birth, they're born this way. He says those who have been made eunuchs by men, meaning even against their will, castrated. And then it's those who by choice. And this doesn't just include the castrated. This also includes people who live as though they were, meaning they choose the celibate life. They choose to serve the kingdom of God. And to not, to, like Ryan said last week, to, to, to put off the distractions that, that come with marriage and family because they've been called to something else and they believe the single life allows them to do that. So he's saying there's three kinds of those people and yes, it's true, if God gives you the strength and the gifting to do that, that is better than marriage because marriage often leads to unhappiness and I agree with the more strict sect of, of the Pharisees that says you shouldn't get divorced except in the case of sexual immorality. Wow. Who can live in such a world? But this is the teaching of Jesus. This is the teaching of Jesus. So the question obviously arises in the debate, is there any other reason where divorce is permissible? If this is what Jesus said, does that mean that anyone who has been divorced shouldn't be remarried? What if they don't have the gift of celibacy or are not called to the state of singleness? 
man, that's a tough teaching. And so you see over the years how this has caused so much trouble. Because it does seem, well, then who should ever get married? The risk is too high. This is the general principle about marriage and remarriage. But even Jesus gives one exception. And so it's fair to say, could there be other exceptions? Is there a principle here that could be extrapolated in a godly, biblical way to encompass other situations? Because there's so many situations. No one situation is the same. So how could we possibly know? Now, to, to our second part of the talk. Paul seems to give us another exception, another allowance for divorce, doesn't he? Do you remember what we read? And he's clear to say, this isn't coming directly from the teaching of the Gospels, the teaching of Jesus, but he, but he says elsewhere, I believe I have the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Christ. So Paul is saying, but I think this also applies, and let's see what he says. Read it with me. Verse 12, this is, we're back in 1 Corinthians 7. But I, not the Lord, not quoting Jesus here, he says, but I, in the Spirit, give you this. I say to the rest of you, meaning those of you who are in marriages not to another believer, which would have been very common, because before Paul even came to Corinth, nobody was a believer. But guess what? Most people were married. Most people married in, the, in, in this time. Much, much higher percentage even than today. There was much fewer single people back then there, than there are today. So most people would have been married when they came to Christ. Some of them, both of them in the marriage came to Christ, so that's what Paul says in the first two verses. But then a lot of them, the rest of them, probably the majority of them might have, at least for a time, been in a, mar- a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. So Paul says, to the rest of you, I say this. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. Okay. This seems to be in line with Jesus' teaching about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Then Paul says something. Well, he goes on to say, for the unbelieving husband is made holy. We'll talk about this in a second. By the wife, the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. And as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. Huh. Now, it's interesting he says, in such cases, plural. Meaning, this could happen in a lot of ways, it seems to me. There's not just one way that you could be abandoned. So I think what Paul is actually um, adding to an additional principle that he's adding to Jesus' teaching, and again, we believe that Paul is writing as one sent by Jesus with a special seal as an apostle, so his writings are more than just his mere opinion. Paul lovingly extends, not overrides, this general principle about marriage and divorce that Jesus gives by adding this exception of an abandoning husband or wife. And I do want you to see, as we've been saying throughout this whole thing, 
how revolutionary it is that Paul addresses both the husband and the wife. Because at this time, they didn't have equal legal rights. So that Paul's doing this is incredibly profound and revolutionary. But he says, in either case, if your husband or your wife leaves you, let them leave. You're not bound. You are free to remarry. Again, who does Paul have in mind? I think he primarily has in mind those who are already married, both as unbelievers. One spouse becomes a believer. And Paul says, stay, as long as they'll stay with you. If they don't want to stay with you, let them go. Don't fight them. Don't coerce them. Let them go. But I think you could also include, because this is often very common in our day and age, which wouldn't have been as common in Paul's day and age, been very, very rare, probably almost never happened, but in our day and age, I think this happens all the time. So I think this principle could include this group. This is a group where you get married, you think you're marrying a fellow believer, because that is what Scripture commands. In fact, Paul says, let me just read it real quick, in, at the end of chapter 7, he's talking about if your husband dies, uh, Paul says, she is free to be remarried to anyone she wants, only in the Lord, meaning only to another believer. So that is the, the principle to marry believers to marry believers. But I think in our day and age it can happen that you think you're marrying a believer, and then you come to realize after some time in marriage, oh wow, my spouse doesn't actually believe. Meaning, they don't actually give Christ authority in their life. They don't seek first the kingdom of God. They don't love Jesus like I thought they did. This happens all the time. So I think this principle will apply in that case. Now you find yourself, you realize, married to an unbeliever. Paul would say, stay as long as they'll stay with you. But if they leave, and part of the reason they might leave is they're tired of you going to church on Sundays. They're tired of you bringing Jesus into everything. They're tired of you praying with the kid. Whatever, they, the, like your faith actually could be one of the reasons they leave. And Paul is saying, don't stop doing those things. And we'll see why that's so important that you keep doing those things. And those things might actually be one of the reasons they want to leave you. And Paul's saying, if that is, don't stop doing the things of Jesus. Let that person go. Don't fight them. So that could be another case. I think there's a third case that also applies. Even though Paul does make clear that we should marry in the faith, I know it's very common and becoming more and more common that, that we'll roll the dice. People will roll the dice and marry someone who's not also a believer. And I want you to see God loves the unbeliever here. What we're about to say about why he tells the Christian to stay is God loves you. If you're, if you're an unbeliever, if you're in an unbelieving marriage, if you're watching online and you're hearing this, God loves you so much that he wants to keep his son or daughter with you so that he might reveal who he is to you for your everlasting good. But this happens. You purposely choose to, to marry somebody you knowingly is not yet a Christian, probably hoping that one day they will become. I think this applies to you as well. So this is super relevant because this is happening all over the place where people find themselves one believing spouse, one unbelieving spouse. So what does Paul say to do? He says, stay as long as they'll stay, but if they abandon you, if they leave, 
Don't chase them down. Don't say, I'll find you. <laughs> Let them leave, okay? And figure out how to live peacefully. So this brings up a huge category then. I call this the abandonment clause to divorce. So we have Jesus saying, except in the case of persistent, ongoing, unrepentant sexual immorality. I add those, those caveats because I don't think Jesus would say if your spouse has one failing of sexual immorality that the goal shouldn't be to try to reconcile. But I think he's primarily thinking about unrepentant, um, unacknowledged sexual immorality, constant ongoing cheating. I don't think Jesus wants you to stay in that kind of abusive relationship. So he says, it's okay to divorce. Then Paul says, if a spouse physically leaves you, don't, you can remarry. Divorce is valid. I wouldn't want you to live in that abandoned state. Now the question then becomes, could you apply faithfully to Scripture, even though Paul doesn't give this specific example, other forms of abandonment? I believe so. So these would be what I think would be biblical allowances to divorce based upon the abandonment clause that Paul gives us here. And I do actually think it's related even to Jesus' sexual infidelity clause. So think about this. When your spouse cheats on you with another uh, woman or another man, what has essentially happened? Remember what we talked about in our wonderful talk on sex within marriage in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. You have a duty, a responsibility. The man in the relationship has has a responsibility to his wife. His body is hers, Paul says. Whoa. And he says, wife, your body is your husband's. So if you're taking your body, husband, and you're giving it to another woman, what have you done? You have abandoned the marriage bed. You've abandoned the essence of your sexual responsibility in the marriage. See the relation? What else is the, at the essence of a Christian marriage? Well, protection. That you protect one another. More often than not, husbands, that you'd protect your wife. That she would feel safe and secure. So imagine if instead of that, the essence of what God, the two become one flesh. Instead of that, you beat your wife physically. You put your hands on her. You torment your spouse psychologically, emotionally. And it's no longer safe. Have you abandoned the essence of your marital responsibility? I think so. And I think the abandonment clause fits here. I do not believe that Jesus would want you to stay in that kind of abusive relationship. Ongoing, persistent, unrepentant abuse and torment. Because the essence is protection and creating safety in the marriage. So in such cases, 
I would both encourage a wife or husband to leave that marriage because they've already been abandoned. Let them go. Even if that means you have to be the one that walks out of the house. A fourth possibility. So we've got sexual abandonment. We've got physical abandonment. We've got protection abandonment. And now I think there's a fourth here. I think that I call this um, the abandonment of provision. Time and time again in the Bible, uh, like in First, First Timothy, we won't go there. Five eight, you could go look at it. Paul says, if you can't take care of your, if you can't provide for your relatives and especially your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever. He says. He's talking to the husband there primarily. Ephesians five, Paul again is talking about marriage. He says, husbands. You should know your wife's body like you know your own body and provide for it as such. For whoever didn't love his own body. So if you are consistently, persistently, unrepentantly neglecting the provision of your spouse, have you not abandoned the essence of marriage? Have you not already left? Oftentimes this can happen in a marriage because you start giving your provision, say, to a mistress or another family that you started or to an addiction, whether that be drugs or gambling. And what you're supposed to give and to provide for and care for your family and your wife or your husband, you're giving us something else. You've abandoned your primary responsibility. I think that fits under the abandonment clause here. And therefore, divorce is allowable. And therefore, what Jesus says about not being remarried, because it would be like adultery, no longer applies. But now you're free to remarry. You're not bound in such cases. So I do think that there are more than just one uh, a, a biblical allowable reasons for divorce and remarriage. So how do you know? How do you know if divorce is permissible in your situation? According to this principle of serious, persistent abandonment of the essential marital responsibility. How do you know? We've got to be really careful with this because what I'm, why, why, am I, why am I being so thorough and specific on this? Because Neither Jesus or myself would want you staying in an abusive, harmful, soul-sucking, dumpster fire of a marriage just to appease some letter of the law. That is not the heart of Jesus. I don't think that should be the heart of anyone within the church. But also, we know the human heart is wicked and is always looking for reasons to get out of a hard thing. And so we have to be very specific and we have to think through this and we have to develop principles from Scripture that help us think about these things because more often than not, if you come to me and ask me my opinion, I'm going to say, fight for your marriage. Christ calls us to fight for our marriages. Except in these instances. Why? Because sin is real, evil is real. And actually, even if somebody calls themselves a believer... Even they say, yes, I'm a Christian. Even if they're up here taking communion, 
but they are abandoning their primary responsibility to love for, care for, be faithful to, provide for, be in proximity to you, I would say, not just that they're being unfaithful to Christ, I would say, in my opinion, they're no longer a believer, and they've already left. And Paul says, you're free to remarry. So, how do you know if you've come to that place? I believe Scripture is clear, and Jesus will talk about this also in the Gospel of Matthew. He'll say, bring in a witness. If that doesn't work, meaning tell somebody about what's happening in your marriage, have that person go to your spouse, talk to them. If they still remain unrepentant and say, I'm not doing that, or this isn't, this isn't a problem, or I'm providing, or whatever, then Jesus says, go get two or three more witnesses and bring them back. Have a conversation with the spouse. If the spouse still remains unrepentant, then it says, bring them before the whole church, which is basically saying you're no longer welcome here until something changes. And this is the way you protect a spouse in a marriage that's like this. So for most of you, the first step would be talk to somebody else. Ask them if they think more conversation is needed. If you're considering divorce, if you're considering whether or not what's going on in your marriage would fall under this or one of these four, I think, provisions for divorce. You need wise counsel. This is why we have elders and deacons at Sedaris Church. If you don't know who to go to, those would be good people to go to. They're on our website. You see their faces. See them on a Sunday. Say, can you get coffee with me? There's going to be a man or a woman in this church who you can talk to that has wisdom that can help you start to walk through is divorce something actually needed, necessary, and loving? Because Paul seems to say there's a time when it is. Whew. Number three. <laughs> Whew. Third movement here. I think if this is, if this is what's going on, if, if I've understood this correctly, I think there's four reasons why now because the primary principle is fight for your marriage and try to stay married and stay with your spouse as long as possible until they leave you, if they're an unbeliever. Four reasons why God would direct us in such a way. Why would he do that? How could this be loving? Doesn't he want my best? Doesn't he want my thriving? Doesn't he want me to be equally yoked so that I might accomplish all the things that God has? Yes, and there seems to be some other principles here at play. So I think there's four principles that I want to show you about. Look at this uh, verse. Um, This is verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. Now there's a hard pause there, and you don't see it. You almost think about starting a new paragraph. Then Paul says, God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Now, the reason I say you need a hard pause, because if you read, God has, not, has, called, uh, has called you to live in peace, you might interpret what he's saying there is, if there's no peace in your marriage, then no stay. Don't think that's what he's saying. And if you're married, you know, <laughs> this would be a bad principle. Because often there is a lack of peace. 
That's what I say, heartbreak. Now he's going back to an optimistic view. He's saying, God has called you to live in peace. So stay, because you, you, your wife may end up coming to faith. Your husband may end up coming to faith, in part because of the witness you provide to them. So what is he saying here? There's a general principle that the gospel is a gospel of peace. So think about this. If every uh, marriage that's between two unbelievers and then one person becomes a believer and then all of those marriages end up dissolving and breaking up, the gospel doesn't feel like a gospel of peace, right? The gospel feels like a dividing gospel, a gospel of turmoil. Imagine then people might think that God came to break up marriages. He didn't came to break up marriage. He came to save marriages and to save people and to unite heaven and earth in the ultimate marriage, right? So you see what I'm saying? So Paul's reminding them, peace is the general principle. So even if you come to faith and you're not, and you're not married to a believer, peace is the general principle. Keep the peace. That's good. The gospel is a gospel of peace. Is that making sense? This is, this is, this is the primary reason here why he says... We shouldn't seek divorce. And just so you know, in those days, it was much easier to get divorced. You could just walk out, and the, the marriage would be basically dissolved. So he's saying, fight for it. Stay. It's going to be hard, but stay. Let me put it another way. If you were in peace before your calling to Christ, meaning your marriage was good enough before your calling to Christ, then stay in peace even after you've been called to Christ. For you don't want the Christ calling to be unnecessarily associated with discord or conflict or death. Because it's all about life and reconnection and love. But this will mean some hard days are ahead. So live in peace. Reason number one. Now, of course, I always have to caveat. That doesn't mean if your marriage before you came to Christ was one of abuse, lack of provision, sexual immorality, and infidelity that, that Paul's saying, well, it was already like that before, and you stayed, so now I think then we have, you see what I'm saying? Then you become, then the situation has changed. But if it was generally good, you guys are figuring it out, yeah, it's not everything God wants, wants it to be, or hopes that it could be, or designed from the beginning it could be, but we should try to keep the marriage together for the gospel of peace. So reason two, what kind of love does this kind of staying in marriage display? What kind of love does it display? To stay in an unhappy or a hard marriage, a marriage in which you don't feel like you get to express the fullness of your newfound life in Christ? And is that love somehow worth fighting for? And I believe the answer is yes. Again and again in the Old Testament, God talks about his relationship with the people of Israel as a marriage. Now guess who is the faithful, believing spouse in that marriage analogy? And who is the unbelieving, unfaithful, difficult, stubborn, rebellious spouse? God is the believing, faithful long-suffering, chesed, never giving up, never stopping, loving spouse. And Israel is the unbelieving, faith-lacking, stubborn, difficult, selfish spouse. 
I'm not saying in these relationships it's always the unbeliever who has those qualities. But at least in the relationship between God and Israel, it was Israel. And what did God do? He stayed. He stayed. He stayed. As long as they would live with him, he would stay. Even if they didn't believe him or trust in him or trust his promises, he'd stay. So when you live into this kind of a relationship, even when it's unhappy, even when it's challenging, as long as it's not abusive, there's no persistent, humiliating, ongoing infidelity, you're providing for one another, you're with one another, Paul says stay because that kind of love actually reflects God's love in a way that even a happy Christian marriage wouldn't. You are getting to paint a picture for the world of God's love, a part of God's love that you cannot see. For those reasons, Paul says, it's worth it. Yes, you give up a lot of the other benefits that God wants for you in your marriage, but you are showing what God's love is like. Third reason. Look at what he says here. This is so crazy. Verse 14. For... This is a so that moment. Anytime you see, circle that. For, so that. Paul's saying, here's a reason why. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What's going on here? One of the huge reasons why uh, the, the believing spouses in the church in Corinth were thinking maybe I should get divorced was they believed that somehow the uncleanness or unholiness of the unbelieving spouse was, was somehow tainting the marriage or even tainting the children. And something really profound, Paul says here, it's the other way around. The holiness of God overpowers and overshadows any uncleanness. And now, actually, what's happening is, even though it's a, a believer and an unbeliever, a Christian and a not-yet-Christian, that marriage is now blessed as holy by God because of one believer's faith. This is crazy. What is it saying? Light does not lose to darkness. Holiness does not lose to uncleanness. And so actually, whether your spouse realizes it or not, you're blessing the entire home by bringing the holiness of God into it. Your physical presence actually becomes the presence of God in that home. And so your children don't become unclean. The other way around, they become holy. And particularly for women in this culture, if they were to leave the marriage, they didn't have right to keep the children. The children would stay with the unbelieving husband if he's the unbeliever. So one thing is Paul says, stay there. This is good for your spouse, and this is good for your children, because God's holiness becomes the definition of that new space. This is such an important principle that... It's not obvious. The ob like, it's easier to think, oh, oh, oh somehow it will be, uh, the water will be t po poisoned or something. No, the water is made holy by the presence of Christ through the believing spouse. This is an incredible, an incredible promise. So, believing spouse, you bring heaven's holiness with you. Heaven's holiness overpowers any unholiness. Light overpowers any darkness. And this becomes true, I would say, both in a marriage relationship of the whole home, 
I also think it's true of a friendship relationship. So many of you who are not yet married are living perhaps with an unbeliever. You can bring the holiness into that friendship, into your, in your shared living space. You literally can bring holiness into a space. That's crazy and amazing and maybe helps us understand why God would let us remain in difficult places, remain in difficult friendships, remain in difficult workspaces, that we might bring the holiness of God into those spaces. First and foremost, the best example is in a marriage. Whoa, this is wild. So not only does that happen, and so you don't have to be worried about it affecting your children, though it can, in practical ways, affect your children, the holiness aspect is not. It's not just that it's a responsibility. You have a responsibility, I think Paul's saying, because Christ called you while you were in this state to remain in this state, and to bring heaven's holiness into your home. To the, to, the way to think about it is this. You're, like, we believe Sedaris means heavenly body. So hopefully when you come into the space, you experience just a taste of heaven. You get to then go do that. If you're going back to a home in which you're married to an unbeliever, you're bringing heaven with you. You create a space of holiness so that your spouse might get a taste of holiness, heaven's holiness, that they would not otherwise get. Your home then becomes the closest that your spouse may get to heaven's gate. So you take that very seriously. How do you take that seriously? Here's how you take it. You sing, you worship, you pray, you raise your children, you worship God as if your life depended on it, your children's life depended on it, and your spouse's life depended on it. So you don't walk away from the callings of Christ and what it means to follow him. You double down, and you have to be intensely persistent to be holy and to be made holy and to be sanctified and to be washed and to be clean because you are the best chance your spouse has to experience heaven and say, I want more of that. Where do I find it? And you point him to the cross. You have to be serious about this. That's why Paul's telling you to stay as long as they'll let you stay. Your witness becomes, for them, their best chance of seeing Jesus and wanting more. And it'll be hard. It'll be so hard. I know so many people. It's so hard. Why would he call us to this? Why would he do this? Why wouldn't he want us to have happily ever after now? Because he wants for your spouse happily ever after to come. And he's going to ask you to be like him and die to some of the goodness of marriage that he designed from the beginning but that you will never have, perhaps. So he says, stay. This is the principle of exchanging happiness. True love exchanges your temporary current happiness for the everlasting future happiness of your spouse. That's the love of Christ. That's the peculiar wisdom of Christ. This is hard love. You have to be serious about it. It's not enough just to stay, but to take serious the responsibility of bringing holiness into your house by bringing the presence of God into your house, which means making the presence of God so real and full in you that it overflows to your children, it overflows to your spouse. 
That's the love of Christ. That's the principle of holiness follows God's holy. Paul doubles down on this understanding, and he says we can actually see this principle effective. This is the fourth reason, effective in other relationship as well. That's that whole section we read. I won't read it again. He says, stay in the situation in which you were assigned when God called you. Meaning, he talks about circumcision, uncircumcision, not as big of a deal for us now. But back then it was a big deal. He saying, stay as you were. He talks about bond servants or slaves, those who are in indentured servitude. Stay as you are. If you can get your freedom, he says, definitely take it. But if, don't worry about it, he says, because you're actually going to bring the holiness of God into that workspace, into that unholy relationship. I called you where you were. For the most part, stay where you were. If things change, definitely you can leave, but don't hate it. Know that God has a plan for it. You see, the principle is stay as you were, where you are. Man, we feel it as Seattleites. It feels like there could be a better situation or place to live sometimes in this city. But maybe God called us and put us where we're at for a reason, that his holiness might begin to seep out of us into a city that desperately needs light. Maybe we should stay where we are. Maybe. He might not call all of us to that. He's called me to that. For this season, and listen, if he changes that calling, I'm out. <laughs> okay, no, serious. I just said serious. I, said, I was going to say joking, but I said no, serious. It's okay to just acknowledge, yeah, of course. If he avails freedom to me, I'll take it. But for now, he called me here. I'm going to overflow with holiness for this place, for this city, for these people who, to be honest, they think my holiness is gross. Serious. And in marriage, it could feel like that. It will actually be the thing that makes you holy that will repulse your spouse. Don't stop overflowing with holiness. Stay where you are. Stay as you are, as long as you can, as long as you're not underneath the yoke of these four abandonment provisions. Okay. So finally, how to do this well? How do I do this well? I know this is some of you. Some of you, I would actually encourage divorce. I just want to say that from the pulpit. Some of you, divorce is an okay thing. It's the right thing. It's the right path. God wants you to remarry. Some of you wants you to stay, fight for your spouse, your unbelieving spouse. How can you do that well? Here's the principle. How do I do it well? You need to think about heaven a lot. Not just every once in a while. Not just, oh, that'll be nice. You need to think about it every day. When you wake up, every night, when you go to bed, you need to remember 1 Corinthians 15, the end of this letter. We will all experience a resurrection from the dead just like Jesus' resurrection. And this resurrection will be, as Ryan said last week, to an eternal state of singleness in which we have spiritual friendships galore and worship of Jesus, and it's going to be wonderful. And you need to think about that. Otherwise, you'll start to think God is not a good God, that the gospel is not actually good news, of why would God put me in a place like this or a situation like this or a marriage like this if he was good. 
you need to think about heaven. And what I mean by heaven is the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth with our new physical bodies where all evil and unbelief is destroyed and washed away and we get to sit in the unbelievable, holy presence of God. And we have friendship and relationship and grow together and learn together. It's an amazing truth. You need to think about it a lot. Because here is the ultimate truth. The only marriage, the only marriage that will actually lead to happily ever after is your marriage with Christ. Every other marriage, no matter what, will let you down. And there will be seasons of unhappiness. So Paul says, no spouse, no problem. You can be married to Christ. Disappointing spouse, no problem. Be married to Christ. Death of your spouse, no problem. You're still married to Christ. No circumstance, good or bad, favorable, unfavorable, surprisingly good or predictably bad, can keep you from the love of Christ. Your happily ever after is secure if you are secure in Christ. Let's pray.